Master metaphor number six, Barclays Table, coming up. We've got 10 master metaphors that we are considering to understand philosophy and the condition of the Western world. Uh, we've considered five, so we're on to number six today, Barclay and his table. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, and I am with Dr. Gregory Schulz, and we are talking about the master metaphors of philosophy, uh, metaphor six, uh, Barclay's table. Dr. Schulz, welcome back to the conversation. Esther Wolfmiller, always a pleasure. You have given me a formula, which I love, formulas, uh, you know, because they're sentences without verbs, uh, and it is this. Metaphysics equals ontology plus epistemology. Uh, so let's let's do a little vocab work to begin, uh, I think, to set the, the table. Oh, man. I was going to try not to do that, to, ta- to, set the t- to use these table metaphors. Sorry. Uh, but let's do a little vocab to um, to set the table for the conversation. So, ontology. What is ontology? Well, okay, to back up to the um, equation that you were referring to before. So, when we hear the word metaphysics, I think um, we're either prone to have our hopes dashed or to have very low hopes to start with. So, you know, I, I remember... When I was first teaching some of these uh, classes on metaphysics, um, going to um, some of the old B. Dalton bookstores and just rejoicing to see from a distance that there was a metaphysics section where I thought I'd find all sorts of interesting texts to require my students. And, of course, that turned out to be mostly New Age stuff. Right, that's right. Yeah. So in, um, in philosophy, metaphysics has, as a term has a pretty good pedigree. It reaches back all the way to Aristotle. And I think that um, for the two of us as, as pastors who've um, gotten pretty used to the Greek and for many of our, our folks listening, uh, we could say that the meta uh, is kind of reminiscent of that um, diagram in Chapman for the uh, Greek propositions. So the the basic notion is that the, the sorry prepositions would be located um, on or around or inside a cube, depending on whether the preposition meant on or inside. And meta would be everything around the cube or the environment in which the cube, let's say the physical world in this case, uh, in which that exists and, and the, uh, I don't know, the invisible reality behind reality as we regularly and easily view it. So it, it really does help to get uh, as quickly as possible then on to what you recommended, and that's to look at those words ontology and epistemology. And let's say that metaphysics um, really is made up of those two um, areas of study in philosophy. So ontology, uh, drawing on uh, its Greek roots, no surprise, really means a study of being or study of beings or maybe more properly both together. So for a quick illustration on that, um, you and I have talked a little bit about E.F. Shoemaker's Guide for the Perplexed in a couple of our interviews. Shoemaker has uh, a very straightforward table in which he asks, what's the difference between or among these kinds of being? And he lists a rock, a plant, an animal, and a human being. And he uses uh, some more of the pseudo-equations that I see struck a good note with you. Oh, yeah, I love the equation. Yeah. He says that the the rock is comprised of M, and we'll just call that matter. And then he says there's nothing else that a rock type of being or a rock is comprised of. So if you move up from rock to plant, the plant is made of matter. You can just wait for the plant to die, and you'll find out it's made of a lot of matter. But when uh, the plant is alive, it also is made up of, well, matter plus life, so call that X. Um, Then just to hurry the table or the illustration on, if you'd go up from rock and plant up to animal, animal is made of matter plus life, X, plus something more because an animal can go to sleep or be anesthetized and wake up. So we have to account for consciousness. So that's made of M plus X plus Y. And then when we get to the human type of being or the human level, 
we would have to analyze that as being made up of M matter uh, plus X plus Y plus Z, which is to say um, matter plus life plus consciousness, like all animals have consciousness, plus something extra. And the something extra, I think, uh, could be considered the capacity to self-reflect. So when you look at that, you could also say that there is a, wait for it, ontological discontinuity Yeah. Yeah, between each of those types of beings. So rocks don't morph into becoming plants or animals. Um, and between each of those types of being, uh, there's this vast, unbridged difference. So you got your rock kind of being, you got your animal, your plant, and your human type of being. And now, I'm ready to, a, by the way, add another variable for womankind to make them <laughs> even more mysterious. Yeah, you feel pretty safe with the audience that's listening into our <laughs> interviews, don't you? Right. Actually, they, they get you know, actually, in the 20th century, a uh, philosopher by the name of Edith Stein uh, said that actually the human race is a species that's comprised of two species and, huh. and talked about how um, she was uh, quite the churchwoman, um, uh, quite an educator, and quite a philosopher to boot. She said that um, actually we need the complementarity between the male's mind penchant for analytical or take-it-apart thinking and the female, the woman's mind, for the synthetic or put things back together and catch the gestalt kind of thinking. There's something, we were looking at Genesis chapter 2 yesterday with a couple getting ready to get married and noticing that God created the, you know, the cows, uh, the boy and girl cows together and the boy and go- girl lizards together, but he created Adam and then later Eve as, a, as, a, as two distinct acts and that would be a reflection of that in some ways. Yeah, either that, either that or our empirical experience with the gift of the wife that the Lord has given to each of us, but we need to go back to Barclay kind yep, of urgently. Yep, yep, all right. So we got ontology. So you have these, this ontological discontinuity between these different things, and this is pointing us to what ontology is talking about, um, the different states of being or being, um, right? Am I with it? Well, of, of course you are. So um, apart from just talking about types of being, there's the, I think, obvious question, and that is, you know, what accounts for any particular type of being continuing to be the type of being that it is. And that's why I get paid the big bucks to teach philosophy, my friend. <laughs> that, well, well done. You use the same word four times in the same sentence. Can you do that with epistemology? <laughs> well, yes, but nobody's calling for that. So would you like to talk about epistemology? I would love to. <laughs> All right. So I have another homespun illustration. Okay. Um, this is, is, is more homely than the ontology one because this is kind of my own. So I, I often um, suggest to the, uh, the Philosophy 101 folks that when we're talking about two types of knowledge, that we want to remember that we're studying epistemology. So that orbits around the questions, what do we know, how do we know, and can we be sure? Um, by the way, uh, sometimes people think that that should be spoken as what do I know and so forth. Um, but I think that's part of that modern problem we began to address with Descartes. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the notion of, of kind of being this imposed solitariness. Um, so, and, and so your question is what do we know? And that is assuming that, so that's part of the question is what is accessible to to humanity. Not, not That's what, right. That's exactly right. So to respect the ontology. So we're, we're all at this human level. We've been uh, made and have been maintained in, in this um, unique and utterly special way. And so we can get to work thinking about that and talking about it and well being logos beings about it, right? So here's, a, here's my uh, very expensive illustration. If you can picture having an, uh, a piece of printer paper, eight and a half by 11 blank sheet of paper and uh, divide that in landscape mode, divide it in half, fold it, and then open it back up so you've got kind of a large greeting card shape in front of you. On the left-hand side, you can put the label at the bottom of that that half of the page um, to be empiricism, 
And on the right side, you could put the bottom there to be rationalism. Now, not to make this needlessly abstract, not that there's anything wrong with abstract thinking, the um, the side that we labeled for empiricism would pertain to our philosopher for today, George Barclay, and the side for rationalism would pertain to uh, the philosopher we had recently, Rene Descartes. So then if you'd enhance the illustration by doing absolutely nothing to the side labeled empiricism, just leave it as a tabula rasa, right? A, a, a blanked out or erased piece of paper. Okay. Then over on the right side where we've labeled that rationalism, you'd want to put words such as white, smooth, surface, and so forth. So the rationalist tends to pay attention to, if not actually to assume, that ideas um, that we need to work with are somehow there in our minds. We heard a pretty good dose of that from Rene Descartes with the cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. And he was thinking about uh, the unique ideas such as triangle and God. Now, the, the empiricist side, the left side by contrast, would be left blank because the empiricists picked up um, a phrase which was actually around for the medieval thinkers, nothing in the mind that is not first in the senses. So um, what we generally find out is that people that have been classified empiricists are very concerned with the pedigree of ideas in their mind that they would trace back to sensory input or sensory impressions whereas the rationalists are somewhat dismissive of experience and tend to live pretty much in their minds. At least if we take, you know, kind of a radical form of empiricism to the left and a radical form of rationalism to the right. So that's about where we find ourselves with that quick introduction to epistemology. Now, where did that phrase come from, nothing in the mind that's not first in the senses? Uh, from the medievals, I think that, that you'll find that... Uh, pretty frequently in Thomas Aquinas, but if you're going to ask me for an exact reference, I can't do that right now. I actually have a piece of paper folded in half with empiricism and rationalism written on it, and so um, it's not even an abstraction for me, but uh, the problem is I've written on it, making it now a rationalist exercise, I think. Uh, yeah, but it's still external to you. You're still sensing the paper. <laughs> now, how, uh, is, this difference intrigues me a little bit between... Um, uh, between mind and senses. So I, I think I would have a tendency to kind of lump them together. So um, the, um, that the things that I'm ex- – the, the, the impact of the external life that, it's, that it has on my internal self, that that's all being processed by the mind. But, but here we want to be careful to make a distinction between those two things or um, even a separation. What, can you help me with that a little bit? Well, I think so. Um, we're taking kind of extreme examples of rationalism and empiricism to make our first move to see what's distinctive between them. So um, as I try to encourage my students, there's no reason to become um, an empiricist or to self-identify as a rationalist. What you really want to see is what the pluses and liabilities of each approach is, and the best way to do that is to see that in the extreme examples. So um, Rene Descartes is my poster professor for extreme rationalism because he, he seems to live and carry on his philosophy so thoroughly inside, in his soul, he would say, or in his mind, whereas Locke actually becomes a little suspicious of what's going on in his mind, at, at least suspicious of stuff if it, um, as I say, doesn't have that pedigree or trail of breadcrumbs going back to things in sensation. So um, John Locke, despite the fact that he's got kind of a genial gentleman-like way of putting things, seems seems to be fairly dismissive of historical evidence such as um, the things that we would take as historical and even eyewitness reports from the Bible Whereas um, a rationalist would cut like Locke, sorry, a rationalist unlike Locke, a rationalist like um, Descartes would be very suspicious of anything outside but would find great comfort or security 
on the furniture of his mind. Mm. Which, so speaking of furniture, that's that's our metaphor for today. Now, it's not Locke's table. It's Barclay's table. So uh, these two were interacting with you. They're both, both uh, Locke and Barclay are empiricists, if I if I got it right, but they are not the same. They're going to be thinking about things differently. Um, so maybe that's, let's just start with the, the text, if we could. Uh, um, the And maybe you can give the background. I'll, I'll read a little bit, but the text that we're working with, and these texts for the listeners will be available on uh, whatdoesthismean.org. If you click on the uh, articles and master metaphors, you'll see uh, this stuff there. This is Barclay's of the principles of human knowledge, this, you know, I want you to know how many hours this tricked me because it says human with an E, and I said humane knowledge? What the... Anyway, the principles of human knowledge, and he's talking about part one. Uh, it's evident to anyone who takes a survey of the objects of uh, human knowledge that there are ideas actually imprinted on the senses or else such as are perceiving perceived by attending to the passions and operations of the mind, or lastly, ideas formed by the help of memory and imagination, either compounding, dividing, or barely representing those originally perceived in the aforesaid ways. So this is, um, he, he's, he's undergoing, uh, he, he's asking the question, at least it seems like to me, he's asking the question of how do you know about a thing? Uh, that's the epistemological thing. And he says there's three ways that knowledge makes it makes its way into our knowing. Uh, is that the question? That, do, am I reading this right so far? Well, I think it's fair to keep this as as kind of an ongoing interrogation. It may help um, for us to acknowledge that Barclay is um, not simply a major philosopher of the modern period, but um, is also a rather important churchman. So he's a, a clergyman, an, an Irish Anglican clergyman. And um, what doesn't get mentioned nearly enough, I think, is he was also a um, very busy scientist. So I don't know this for a fact, but I would think that anybody studying ophthalmology or maybe optometry, and if they were doing a book with um, various, you know, an, analogy, an anthology with various writings in the past that where people have talked about vision, there'd be a pretty big chapter by Barclay. So he worked with um, vision and color especially. Hmm. So when he's talking, you can you can kind of hear um, the scientists, well, empiricism in there, right? So he's been doing a lot of experimenting as well as thinking about things. And uh, that's why he's talking the way he is. He says... Uh, and here's where the metaphor comes in. The table I write on, I say, exists. That is, I see and feel it. And if I were out of my study, I should say it existed, meaning thereby that if I was in my study, I might perceive it, or that some other spirit actually does perceive it. So this is where you you've drawn this is the line from which you've drawn the metaphor of the table and so and Barclay's looking at the table and he says this thing exists and then he defines existence to say that it is perceived now and even if I leave if I were to come back I would perceive it again or if any other spirit would be in the the study they would also perceive it so he's connecting being to to perceivability is that even a word it is now <laughs> so well of course it is just just say it with a confident voice and it, it'll be a good one so the thing is that barclay in what we're reading is um not primarily doing scientific work and he's clearly not writing a sermon at least the way we're used to it um, what he's doing is philosophy so he has um the notion Perhaps it's because he wants to develop himself as a powerful speaker for biblical truth as the bishop he's going to to um, He wants to do a very good, thorough job on philosophy. And so he takes on the biggest, most influential philosopher of the generation before his and of his generation in uh, college and grad school, who is John Locke, the empiricist. Now, 
in order to do philosophy, what Barclay has to be able to do is talk about these questions of ontology and epistemology. And he has to talk about vocabulary like essence and being and, and so forth. So um, what he has is he actually has two definitions of two different types of essences um, by which he's going to cover all beings in creation and as we'll see then some. So um, he he says uh, in something that's very familiar to most people who read Barclay that first of all, the essence of inanimate beings. Now that would be beings without minds, right? The essence of inanimate beings, think down low on our ontology table, mm-hmm. uh, their essence is to be perceived. And and uh, for you or others who uh, love the Latin on this, it's esse est percipi, to be, and it's a passive, to be perceived. Now, most introductions, I think, alas, um, we stop right there. But he actually also talks about what the essence of mindful beings is. He says the essence of mindful beings uh, reads like this in Latin, esse est percipera. Um, so the essence for mindful beings is to perceive. And then I, in the section that you read, he's actually pointing out kind of blatantly that the essence of the table is to be perceived. But what he's leaving it to us to recognize is that uh, the essence of you or me or any human being, any mindful being uh, in the presence of that table is to perceive. And that's that's where the tale gets kind of interesting here. Yeah. Now, what... To, um just to get our heads around it a little bit more, is it possible to to put a contrast of what Locke would say about Barclay's table? I mean, I don't know if Barclay would let him into his study to look at the table, but if he would, how how would Locke's empiricism differ from Barclay's empiricism here? Well, um, Locke's empiricism or his understanding of knowledge ends up at substance. So um, Locke would say that the table is a table and it continues to exist as a table because somehow it embodies the substance of a table or perhaps you'd want to say the substance of the wood from which the table is made. And then um, Locke has a um, very memorable kind of dodge right at that point so he doesn't have to talk any farther. He says, um, you know, sometimes this is what the philosophers in the past have called substance and he says, but fundamentally we have to say that all of this is based on substance or we know not what. <laughs> we know not what. Um, so I kind of like Locke. Is yeah, well, it bad to admit that to <laughs> you? I, I would like to help you respect and enjoy Barclay's company a little bit more. <laughs> That's, I mean, uh, sometimes I read this stuff and I say, well, we know not what. I didn't know I was quoting Locke at that point. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Well, now you know. Yeah, so so while Barclay would be interested in the essence, it's Locke who's interested in the substance uh, of things. Well, uh, it, as, as that's, a, that's a fair way to put it, but no. So yeah. Locke is wimping out when he mentions substance. It's possible, it's possible that every philosopher who answers the question, why are there existing things rather than nothing at all, by saying it's because of their essence, it's because of their substance, that they are not doing their duty. So uh, the the logical question to ask is, you know, so suppose um, we're talking about why human beings continue to be human beings and don't suddenly turn into storks or, you know, like the uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and the the, the quantum propulsion, why the spaceship doesn't suddenly turn into a dozen flowers in the middle of space or something like that. So why do things continue to be? And um, if a philosopher answers substance, that's just kicking the can down the road. The next question then is, well, why does this substance, which nobody can seem to put his finger on, why does that stay in place? And by the way, what is that? Whereas Barclay actually has a response. Hmm. And, it, and it has to do with perception. 
either being yes, either it has being, to do with the perceiver. Uh, so okay. um, we can ease into this by doing something like this. So um, if, if we can picture ourselves teaching a, a group of um, enthusiastic and diligent undergraduates in a classroom, right? Yes, so, that's uh, we're that talking an about abstraction can, or is that a reality? Is no, that, that's a reality. Okay, I, okay. I get to do that every day, really. <laughs> good, good. So we're, we're in this classroom and um, everybody's sitting at a table or a desk and I point to the, the table up front and I say, um, what's this? And <laughs> because it's a philosophy class, nobody wants to raise their hand. But when I, because they're waiting for a trick question, mm-hmm. when I uh, say, no, no, just a straightforward thing, they'll say, it's a table. And I say, so... What's right here then? And they'll say, there's a table right there. And I say, how do you know? And they kind of smile at me and say, well, take a look at it or wrap your knuckles on it again. It's right there. Now, that's to perceive the table. Now, if if I would take all of those students out of the classroom, turn off the lights, and close the door, and we're standing out in the hallway, and I say to them, is that table still there in the classroom? They would say, of course. And then I would say, "How do you, how do you know? know?" Right, right. And if you if you really had to know, most people would be pushed to say, "Well, you can just stick your head back inside the room and turn on the light, and you can see it's still there." Now, I don't think that Barclay ever doubted that. Well, in fact, I know he didn't doubt that things continued to exist when there weren't human observers around. But here comes the really fun part. He said. As far as we've gotten so far, um, if you'll acknowledge that the existence of a um, an inanimate being is to be perceived, on what possible basis can you say that you know that an inanimate being continues to exist if it's not being perceived? And right there, uh, we get to lapse into some poetry. So this is a, a famous two stanza thing from uh, Ronald Knox. I think uh, British people, they do a lot of great poetry and they do a lot of, well, not so great poetry and limericks too. (laughs) So this is a not so great poem that has become great because it helps many, many, many first year students or people looking at Barclay for the first time to see what he's up to, I think. So here it is. Two stanzas, remember? Okay. There was a young man who said, God must think it exceedingly odd he finds this tree continues to be when there's no one about in the quad. So um, it's it's meant to be some, uh, what, uh, Oxfordshire um, sarcasm because uh, wouldn't God think this is strange? There's no human being around, and yet this tree continues to exist, right? Right. But then the reply is where the Barclayan lesson really lies. So here it is. God's reply, dear sir. Your astonishment's odd. I am always about in the quad, and that's why the tree will continue to be, since observed by yours faithfully, God. <laughs> so, so we um, can perceive things in a very, very partic- limited way, but God, who is eternal, and uh, in, in this sense, he, he, there's no break. He's infinite. Is is the one who is able to perceive at all things, uh, all th- at all times, everything. Well, yes, but this is not um, this is not the God of the philosophers, if there is such a thing. This is the God of the Bible. So it's not it's not that things are dependent in this case on shall we say on God's omnipotence, on His power to make things continue to be. It's that. They continue to exist by virtue of his personal care. So, it's it's that God, a mindful being. After all, if you know, if we're going to try to use our categories, that would be the better one for him. A mindful being, um, he perceives, and he is at least a rigorous philosophical response to the question: How can things continue to exist? when there's no empiricist or anybody else around to perceive them. Um, and, you know, you and I have talked about this a little bit before, Brian, but um, the the philosophy that Barclay is doing could be considered 
an extended sermon or a series of meditations on one particular passage from St. Paul's address to the Athenian philosopher. So in Acts 17, uh, we have Paul, who is headed for that, uh, that crescendo proclamation of Christ's resurrection from the dead uh, to blow the roof off, so to speak, of the Areopagus with the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, en route to the gospel of the resurrection, um, Paul says, um, God made one man from every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in hope that they might find their way toward him and find him. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, for, and here's the quote, in him we live and move and have our being. So, uh, in God, trees continue to be when not perceived by human beings in the quad. Right? I. I was um I, I had the privilege of standing on the Areopagus in Athens a couple of years ago and was reading this text and um and it's an amazing sort of thing because there in the background is the temple to Zeus, the temple to Athena, the temple to down there's the temple to Festus, there's temples everywhere and without even thinking it you, you when you read it you could say I can see that you're very religious and you just kind of sweep your hand around and there's and there's all of these temples that are that are everywhere. It's astonishing sort of thing. But then he, he, you're right. He cuts to the quick of it and he says, look at, uh, God is right there with each of us. And I've got a note in my tech, in my Bible written in here that that quote in him, we live and move and have our being is from the old Greek philosopher Epimenides. Um, that he's quoting these old philosophers and saying, you even have this doctrine there already that God is not the, you know, isn't living at the temple there to help the, the lumberjacks and the, and the, uh, you know the, um, the 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 people who are fighting and the soldiers and things like this. He he is holding each one of us up, um, and so and so Barclay's taking that doctrine and saying we we ought to know this that it's by being perceived by God that that the world is being held together. Well, that's what he's working at. So um, you've got Epimenides' quote. That's from um, what about the seventh century BC, right? Six hundred BC or so, and. Um, what what Barclay is doing is I think he's carrying that particular quote or he's got his Bible open to that particular quote much of the time when he's doing philosophy. Mm. So I, I had this uh, experience with a summer uh, graduate course at Marquette when I was doing my philosophy stuff and it was a course on Barclay. The summer courses tend to be a little bit more compact because there isn't a full semester but also – Oddly enough, somehow a little bit more um, relaxed because it's over the summer months. So we had a, a series of papers that we were each assigned to do. And in uh, one of the papers that I was assigned to do and then to read to the class on Barclay, I think I referred to this passage, in him we live and move and have our being about three or four or five times. And I noticed that um, while I was reading the paper and then it was going to be followed by you know critical discussion and stuff, but as I was reading the paper – uh, folks were looking a little uneasy, and when the when the Q and A or the <laughs> grilling started after the paper, um, I, I realized that what had happened was everybody in the class knew that I was actually a pastor, and they were assuming that I had somehow run together my theological thinking with the philosophical thinking uh, that I was supposed to be doing with Barclay. Um, and they were very much afraid that I was just quoting a Bible passage to seal off the points of my analysis and argument. Now, I was, but I wasn't. So what, what I'd like to say is that Barclay really knew what he was doing because he picked a passage that originally wasn't in the Bible but became a Bible passage, right? <laughs> so we've got Epimenides, pagan Greek, hymn to Zeus, 600 B.C., and then St. Paul picks this up and uses it, and now it becomes a quotable quote from the New Testament book of Acts. Uh, so what what actually happened was, I suppose, um, that that those folks, I, I appreciated them being embarrassed for me instead of throwing things at me, but the, um, what had happened was they were operating with an arbitrary boundary. You can't quote the Bible 
when you're trying to do the pursuit of wisdom we call philosophy, right? Um, whereas Barclay and an understanding of Barclay depends on the integration of scripture and philosophy. Hmm. And it, would Barclay take it the, the next step? This is kind of this is where I want to push it, but I don't know if Barclay would go there or if it's even particularly helpful, because it seems like Descartes would say, "Well, I think, therefore, I am." In other words, because I'm a sentient being, and I have some sort of, uh, uh, well, I have a thinkingness. I'm thinking, so I have being. Um, that Barclay would say, "Well, we are sentient beings, so we have a. It's it is our essence to perceive." But would he take the next step and say, "In fact, in the end, our humanity." is not resting ultimately on our perceiving, but on our being perceived by God. Well, yes. So I wish that I were a more competent guide with Barclay. All told, I I love teaching him for a number of the reasons that we're talking about here in our interview. Um, I've, I've only had, um, only really done one paper by him for presentation anywhere. But I, I would expect that if you could both look at his philosophy and his sermons later on, that you would actually see these are a little bit uh, of uh, two sides of the coin. So um, what Barclay is doing, or at least he's giving a low outside pitch for some of us to to wail on and, and do this, is he's assuming the veracity of the Bible and the reality of the incarnation, second article stuff, and the first article stuff, and he's somewhat matter-of-factly weaving this into his philosophy, not as an incidental feature, not as some sort of uh, Christian veneer, but this is actually the linchpin stuff, right? So um, as, uh, as one of my professors said, Barclay is really the only major philosopher in modernity from 1600 to the present day that makes God a serious factor, the God of the Bible, a serious factor in his philosophy. Hmm. I wanna, if it's all right, I, I'd like to back up for just a couple of minutes and maybe pick up a couple more texts in the, in the text that you have here. And, um, and I think I've got a better context for understanding them now. Um, here, here's one line. He says, uh, It is indeed an opinion strangely prevailing among men that houses, mountains, rivers, and, in a word, all sensible objects have an existence, natural or real, distinct from being perceived by the understanding. So, so, so that would be um, his, uh, his definition of uh, inanimate beings is that their existence is found in their being perceived. And he says that um, it's a common thought that that's not true and that should that idea that they exist apart from their perception should be rejected. Is that is that right? Well, he would at least be saying, as an empiricist, and as an empiricist who is seeing through John Locke's empiricism, that um, this was an has been an inadequate answer as to why things continue to be what they are. Is there a name for that idea, by the way, that a thing exists apart from its perception? Well, let's see. Um, yeah, so I think I, I did this in a chapel sermon some years ago. Um, the The sermon was on one of the Psalms. It's just slipped my mind for the moment. But uh, the it, you might think about Psalm 139 and, and where the Psalm writer... Uh, talks about how God knows us, right? Knows us in the secret place of the womb mm-hmm. and is always there. Um, I think that's the sort of thing that Barclay wants to push the conversation toward. And if he didn't want to do it, I say, um, let's take him seriously and realize that he has, has opened a door into the sunlight that we should step into philosophically and humanly. So um, I, I remember thinking growing up that the fact that we continued to exist or that, you know, the, the stars and the, um, the stuff on the moon with the Apollo program that we really like to watch and learn about, I remember thinking that that was just an exercise of God's raw power. And, and it's a, 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 certainly a sublime sort of thing. 
that's really hardly the lesson of the Psalms. It's that it's an exercise of God's loving care, Ah. right, for his creation. And especially when we come to ask that question under King David's tutelage, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You know, the Uh Psalm 8 and Hebrews 2 Uh stuff. Right. Oh, it's starting. The lights are starting to come on now. Keep going. Yeah. Well, and then I, I, I would bring this back um, to one of our initial topics to talk about um, epistemology and ontology, so knowledge and being. And I wonder if it's ever right to think of any of the biblical uses of God knowing things um, in in a merely perceptive or cognitive way. It's always being done as God does things, right? And then when we start with, um, as, as we Lutherans love to share with anybody who will listen, we start with the theology of the cross and begin with Christ and then work your way back into the other, other parts of Scripture God wants to be known in Christ, right? Um, we work backwards and we find that when God knows us, he knows us as a loving God, um, as we're hearing this week or as uh, some of you have been reading this week for the Lenten Old Testament reading, um, that that God does not want people to perish. Um, if you live by your own righteousness, you will, but that is not something he wants. So, you know, his knowledge, his will, um, anywhere that we're invited to, to listen in on this because he's revealed it in Christ and his word, um, God is always doing this carefully. He's always mm-hmm. always loving us. It's never just knowledge or epistemology. It's loving knowledge. So, so that when we, when we talk about things being held together by perception and especially by being perceived by God or being known by God, we're, we're talking about it's, it's only a person who can know and perceive. It's not an abstraction that can know and perceive. And so this understanding really pushes us to... Um, when we think about God, and I think you made this distinction before, it's not the God of the philosophers, this kind of absolute supreme being who's acting according to power, but it is a person who knows us, and it's in being known by that person and loved and cared for by that person that we have not only our life and salvation, but we have our very existence. Like, I, that's, this is what Paul in him you live and move and have your being, that it's it's God who has a name, who who speaks to us and and, uh, uh, and who gives us to be what we are. Well, yes, sure. And then, you know, I was, I was thinking too with um, with Paul's words to the Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, you know, when think back to when you stood probably about where the Apostle Paul was, right? Um, that what Paul is doing is not simply an argument that goes point for point for point for point and then the resurrection of the dead, Christ rose from the dead, um, but actually, the fact that God is this Christ who died for us and rose from the dead has a this retroactive effect on the, the rest of Paul's argument. So everything leading down to the proclamation of God's resurrection on the first Easter, um, all of that is, is supercharged or lit up with... Uh, the gospel's understanding, and even <laughs> even this pagan Greek poem to Zeus, right? Uh, even this gets um, repurposed and put in the service of the gospel, and it'll never be the same again. So this old question, and this sounds like it could have been written by the student of Berkeley, uh, when a tree falls in the woods, you know, does it make a sound uh, if no one's there to hear it? Uh, in other words, what is the um, what is the ongoing ongoing existence of a thing when it's not being perceived by a perceivable thing? Barclay will say, "Look, God hears the tree fall. <laughs> He's in every place, and that is what gives a kind of a continuity to being is the is the is the fact that God is always perceiving it." Right. So, in Him we, but also everything else in creation. In him, we live and move and have our essence, right? Have our being. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, what um, uh, what did we miss in the thing? Did I miss anything that I should have picked up uh, clearly? You want to um, round us out on this conversation about Barclay's table? Um, well, thanks. So 
uh, there was one other quote that I I know from our talking off the air we're, we're both kind of taken by, and uh, it also shows up in the text that we're providing for our listeners to see on the site. Um, Barclay says, um, this is just before the last paragraph of, of the excerpt we've provided. Yes, yes, I got it here. Hence it is clear there can be no unthinking substance or substratum of those ideas. And he's talking about ideas that um, that we are acquainted with or understandings we have of the world around us. So substance just doesn't do it. Now, um, I wonder if if we can say that there's some huge apologetic purpose to Barclay too. And maybe we could think about this as an apologetic for people who are uh, philosophically educated or are maybe even well-educated scientifically or in modern ideas, and that is that um, the the notion of substance, to say that there is something under here, whether it's a Higgs boson particle or whether it's uh, some fractal pattern or something, that that does not answer the question that we're asking. It's not answering the question, um, how do these things continue to be what they are? Right. Even before we get to the question about origin, how do they continue to be what they are? And I think Barclay provides us with a, a, a wonderfully clear and persistent, uh, scientifically, philosophically, and theologically well-informed opportunity uh, to keep forwarding that question to every discussion that's going on. Okay, okay, so you're giving us this worldview, so you think there's no need for the God of the Bible, well, um, you know, we've just got one kind of lingering question. How do things continue to be what they are? <laughs> and he says, apart from, Barclay would say, apart from God, apart from the God of the Bible, it cannot. Right? Huh. That's really phenomenal. It's reminding me of this passage in um, uh, Colossians that talks about how all things are held together in Christ. Um that all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, principalities and thrones, and all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. That's Colossians one sixteen and 17. And do you know what? What's, what's also wonderful about this is that then it's in Colossians 2 that we have one of the most famous biblical passages about philosophy— um, where St. Paul tells us to see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. And then if you want to ask, what's hollow and deceptive philosophy? He says, hollow and deceptive philosophy that depends on the basic principles of this world <laughs> rather than on Christ. <laughs> now, this is completely kind of, you're, you're cracking me out of my materialistic assumptions. So the, so the idea that this, that things are, uh, that they continue to be, um, that they exist apart from any sort of perception by sentient beings or whatever, that this is, this is an, a philosophically untenable position. Um, and that we must understand that it is only through God and, and, and the personal God, the God of the Scriptures, that, that all things not only began to exist, but continue to exist. I'm a changed man. <laughs> Out with Locke, in with Barkley. Well, thank you. Um, this, this is really phenomenal. Now, uh, th- so this is Master Metaphor number six, Barkley's Table. I think, is it true? Did you say it's all downhill from here? Or is that just my own thinking of how, how things are no, going? No, I'd, I'd be willing to say that. Um, I, I would like to offer the thought that even though as um, men of the Bible, we would tend to be more comfortable with the medieval thinkers and because things haven't gotten so stubbornly rejecting of Christ and scripture, maybe even with the Greek philosophers, it's actually critically important to be studying the modern philosopher because philosophers, because they've, they've had and still have the most influence over the people that we serve and want to reach. So next week we're actually headed for, uh, the poster professor of the enlightenment and, uh, <laughs> Actually, somebody who was raised as a Lutheran to boot. It's Immanuel Kant, Uh-oh. and we'll be looking at his so-called categorical imperative or his ultimate principle for relationships. All right. Kant, Nietzsche, 
Wittgenstein and Cyril, they're all coming up. It, is it right? Is it, uh, I mean, too much of a generalization to say that the program is now going to switch, that with Barclay it was a, a positive program. We want to know what we can, what is real and what is known and what can be sure, and that it's going to take a slightly destructive turn. So it's going to be t- tearing apart what is and can be known, um, or is that too broad of a generalization? Do you know that's one way to take it, but that's not going to be my approach. So I think that um, a person is really going to have to do his or her work to stay on top of this. But first of all, uh, Barclay is an anomaly for the modern period. So the last 400-some years, um, Barclay is the standout major philosopher, as we mentioned before, when it comes to the God of the Bible. It's not, by the way, that there aren't a lot of... Um, second- and third-tier philosophers, if you will, uh, that that don't take serious account of this. But then a person has to keep uh, their wits about them and be willing to do some thinking uh, because Kant will show us uh, what ethics is like when you are deliberately trying to live without the God of the Bible. Nietzsche is going to explain what the consequences of the death of God is for us in the 20th century, um, Wittgenstein's going to remind us that the gift of God that is language um, is not going to go away, which is a great thing for those of us who know that God works through the means of grace of Scripture. And Searle's Chinese room, um, I think, is going to remain important. That's maybe a, a little bit questionable, but Searle is going to show us uh, that despite our apparent incapacity to tell the difference, there actually is a difference between artificial intelligence and you. Ha! Fantastic. Well, thank you again for this conversation on Barclays Table, for bringing this to me, uh, for our listeners as well. Uh, and God be praised that um, in him we live and move and have our being, that God knows us, and even though he knows us uh, in spite of that, perhaps, uh, or perhaps because of it, he loves us and dies for us and forgives us all of our sins. Uh, Dr. Schultz, thank you very much. Thank you.